Now, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 9, we're continuing our study through the book of Matthew. We have been in Matthew 8 and 9. This is a section where Jesus has been doing some amazing and supernatural things. Healings, exorcisms, miraculous works. We've seen a little bit of all of it. And here we come to the end of this section where Matthew is going to tell us three different episodes or three different stories that sort of cap off this whole season of miracle working that Jesus has been doing. Now, what we're going to find fascinating about these episodes, and it's actually true of all the, the occurrences, miraculous occurrences that Matthew has written about, what, what, what's amazing is, is not just what Jesus is doing, as incredible as that is. What's amazing is how everybody around him is responding. In fact, you could say that oftentimes it seems there are just as many different reactions to Jesus and his miraculous healings as there are people themselves. It reminds me about 25 years ago when I went to see a movie called The Matrix. And I did so, by the way, with an elder of this church at an elder retreat, so there. But I remember walking out of that movie, and it was, it was so otherworldly, so fresh, so different, you couldn't do anything but talk about it. And as people talked about this movie, you were either all in or all out. You couldn't stay neutral. Either you loved it or you hated it. And that's really the picture that Jesus is, is being presented to us here by Matthew. After hearing all of these accounts, you can say what you want about Jesus, but you can't. It's impossible to stay neutral. Either you're all in or you're all out. Matthew, in other words, is not just spinning some, some religious yarns from his former days as a disciple that he sort of put together to kind of give us some, some tidbits, some nuggets of truth to inspire us. He's grouped these episodes together in such a way for us to be pressed to make a decision about who this person, Jesus, is. Now, we're going to be in a little bit of a longer section this morning, uh, Matthew 8, I'm sorry, Matthew 9, 18 through 34. I'm not going to ask you to stand. This, is, this whole thing is already way more awkward than it needs to be, but I am going to read this for us and then pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word this morning. So this is Matthew 9, beginning at verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him, and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we freely acknowledge that you are not confined by the mediums that we communicate with. In fact, you're the one that created them. And so, Lord, we're asking now that you would use this medium this morning to communicate the truth of your word. Ultimately, Lord, it's not about those things. It's about the power of the gospel. It's about the power of the scriptures. And so, Lord, we pray that those would stand forth today and that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of this morning's message is Death, Life, and Decision. And so, so our three main points are going to kind of follow that outline. So first we're going to look at the death and decay in this passage. That's number one. Number two, we're going to look at the liberty and life in this passage. <clears throat> and finally, the decisive decision that's pressed upon us because of these things. So let's dig in death and decay. We have three separate episodes, and in this first episode, we have a synagogue ruler. He was a, a Jewish man of high position. He was sort of the boss of the synagogue, an important man. Luke tells us that his name was Jarius, and apparently Jarius had a daughter, and she was very sick, maybe had been sick for some time. We don't know, but she has passed away, and so here we see this this man of high reputation being brought to the lowest of lows by the death of his own child. And can I just say few things are more debilitating, few things are, are more soul-crushing than to have your child suffer, than to have your child be deathly sick, to have your child pass away. And some of you have had that heart-rending sort of experience and so so you you know the heaviness and darkness that that lays over this house but in this first episode we also have a woman who it says has a has an issue of blood or a discharge of blood that she's had for some 12 years now luke in his account of this story also tells us that she had spent all of the money that she had all of her inheritance all of her means on physicians who were not able to help her. And it's hard to, to, to really put ourselves back in that place to understand um, how disrupting this must have been to her life because of all of our medical advances and such. We, 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 these things were more of an inconvenience to us, but for her, they were terribly debilitating. First of all, she, she probably was not married. Um, second, secondly, she was undoubtedly socially and religiously isolated. 
Um, remember that that blood was was a sign of impurity and until there was a purification process she would not have been able to come into the synagogue she not not would not have been able to go to the temple she was ritually impure and and this adds to the to the weight of darkness that sort of resides over this first episode now there is a second episode look back at your text and it tells us there are two blind men and we shouldn't be surprised that it says that there are two blind men because we can just sort of see these two blind men sort of sticking together through thick and thin right we we know that blind people are are particularly um, vulnerable to being taken advantage of, uh, particularly vulnerable to being abused, and all the more so in that culture, right? There were, there were no programs, there was no financial assistance, there was no government aid. The poor, and particularly blind people, were at the mercy of other people's goodwill or favor. They were going around begging for money, and they were in a place of profound need. And finally, here in this third episode, we have a demon-possessed person who also happens to be mute. Now, it's one thing to be demon-possessed, as the, the demoniac was that we saw a couple of weeks ago that we studied, but it's quite another to be demon-possessed and then mute. In other words, unable to communicate, unable to express needs. And again, we can imagine that sometimes muteness even more than blindness, can be incredibly lonely, incredibly isolating, where you are literally um, out of touch with everything that's sort of going on around you and all that is being communicated. And so, so these three episodes together, and I think Matthew puts them together for a reason, when you take them as a whole, it just presents a picture of profound human suffering it's like taking a mission trip which a number of you have done over the years where you'll go to places like India and go through the slum areas there or, or, or maybe you're you're visiting a country in South America and and you drive by the garbage dumps where the poor and children and the disabled live the, those things leave a lasting impression don't they they, 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 they are a picture, they, they are literally a picture of profound human suffering. And sort of this aura of hopelessness, does it not, hangs over those kind of situations. Well, that's the same thing here. And, and, and that's by design. There, there is an intentional aura of hopelessness that hangs over these situations and these people. And the one thing they communicate to us beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the problems that these people are experiencing are beyond the realm of human solution. The, the, the problems are so um, indwelt, they're so inbred, they're, they're such a product of cultural generations of dysfunction, societal levels of dysfunction, religious um, levels of dysfunction, that people simply don't have the capacity to deal and to fix what is wrong. Now, before we leave this first point, I, I wonder where in your life you might be feeling something similar this season. Maybe there's some sort of acute problem or 
an ingrained recalcitrant issue that just seems irresolvable um, maybe it seems that you or you literally have wrestled for years with this particular thing these years have oftentimes feel feel wasted maybe it does involve the death of a loved one or a debilitating disease or maybe it's just a low level pain that you've experienced or are experiencing in your meriting in your I'm sorry in your marriage in your parenting maybe there's some sort of addiction that you're wrestling with or some sort of vocational roadblock you've run up against what whatever it is I simply ask you what what is that thing because you see it's really important to get in tune with what that thing is and not live in denial of it you see we do live in a culture unlike this one that was full of distraction full of plenty of things to self-medicate and to get your mind um, off of our problems I mean we have media we have drink we have travel experiences recreation there there's a hundred things right that we use to self-medicate our pain but it's really important that we get in tune with what's really going on with our hearts what's really going on in our lives because unless we acknowledge the realness okay of the suffering and the pain that we carry with us we'll never be able to receive the mercy the healing mercy the healing grace of Jesus and that is what these people are experiencing in spades this aura of hopelessness and, and again I just wonder how many of us can identify with that this season I also wonder what you do with that right there's there's because because we all do something with with those aches we all do something with those pains we all do something with that brokenness and that sorrow and then of course we are set up to receive the second part i think of what matthew wants for us to see in this text is that death and decay give way to liberty and life okay let's look back at the text here just for a second you see, what, what, what lands on us, what's equally astounding as the profound human suffering in, the, in these stories, what, what really strikes us is Jesus' posture towards it. Everything in this story, in these three episodes, emphasizes Jesus' life-giving activity. Jesus is an active agent in the story of these people he is moving towards death and disease he is moving towards physical healing he is literally a hands-on agent this is not jesus driving by on a mission trip sort of abstractly and distantly observing the problems of others jesus is seeing jesus is noticing um, Jesus is, is, is taking note of the passage that we're, we're going to look at next week. It tells us in Matthew 9, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Jesus is not some distant religious figure here. He is one who is not only moved in the heart, but he is compelled towards action. Now, one of the things that, that should get our attention here and that we should note is that this was actually very unusual for a rabbi or a holy man in ancient Israel to take that sort of notice or that sort of attention to the suffering of the people that he was called to minister to. And, and, and he, remember this very famous parable. It's found in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we're not going to read it, but I'm just going to kind of narrate it. You, you probably know it well, right? That there was a man on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a hilly, mountainous, treacherous area that was prone to be very dangerous. And this man was robbed and mugged and left for dead. He's, he's bleeding, dying on the side of the road. And it tells us that three people came and came upon him. There was the scribe, there was, of course, the Levite, and then finally there was the hated Samaritan. And, and you probably know the story, which, is, which of these three men stopped to help him. Of course, it was the Good Samaritan, the man who was a natural enemy to the man who was injured. Now, what we forget is that in that passage, Jesus is actually telling that parable as a point of condemnation against the scribes and Pharisees. They are the priests and the Levites. They are the ones that pass on to the other side. And we have to ask, why didn't they move? Why weren't they compelled? And I think Jesus' point there is that it's not simply that they had an uncaring, hard heart towards the needs of others, although that's, that's obviously true when you read the Gospels. But there was the very real risk of ritual defilement, right? Um, what if they were to get off their horse or donkey or pony or whatever they were riding and to go over to this man and he was to be dead and they were to actually touch him, they would be defiled. What, 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 what in fact it, what would happen? If they were to go over there and touch this man and he was bleeding, they would be defiled, right? They would be unclean. That would, that would put them outside the temple, outside the service of their priestly duties. And so, so here in this parable, they pass on by. They neglect a greater good for the sake of their own rituals and traditions, and so, so in that sense, Jesus is the very opposite. Jesus is active. He is forward. He is fluid. He is not static. He is moving towards need. So let's, let's look back at the text for a second. So it says that this young girl, let's start with her, has died, and there is a woman who is bleeding. Now, the two things that those, the thing that has, those two instances have in common, again, is this idea of ritual defilement. To touch a dead body was to be defiled. To touch a woman with blood would, to, would be to be defiled. It's not something that a holy man, a righteous man, would do. It would not be proper, uh, would not be appropriate for a man of his setting. But what we see Jesus doing is that instead of avoiding touch, he not only risks contamination, but he actually turns the whole contamination curse upside down. It says that he touches the girl, and what happens? He restores her to life. 
instead of recoiling from the woman who has touched him while she's bleeding, he receives her touch and draws attention to it. So, so a far, far from being standoffish here, Jesus is eager to engage with those who are richly undefiled. He is moving towards them. He is pressing towards them. He is highlighting to others what they are doing. And really the same could be said for these blind men as well and these men who are demon-possessed. Remember, there were all sorts of social and religious taboos in place regarding people with deformities and disabilities. Leviticus 21 tells us that if you were deformed or disabled physically in any way, you could not serve in the high priesthood. Just like perfect lambs were required for sacrifice, there was a spotless physical stature that was required of high priest. Once again here, Jesus flips all of this on its head. And what is he doing? He's touching the blind. He's touching the mute. He's touching the bleeding. He is touching the dead. And when we look at all of these stories in total, it, it, it compels upon us this great gospel paradox, right? And here it is. Instead of death or sin or unrighteousness infecting Jesus, Jesus himself is giving life. Far from Jesus being contaminated, far from Jesus being made unclean, the exact opposite happens. Whatever Jesus touches, whatever Jesus speaks to, it is given life, it is healed, it is restored, and there is a freedom that is given. There is a life that's given, and not just a physical freedom, as we see from this text, but most importantly, a spiritual freedom. Your faith has made you well. Your sins are forgiven. Blind men, you can come and worship. Unclean woman, you can come back to the community of God. Um, daughter of the ruler of the synagogue, you are given once more life. The God of the universe has breathed life onto you. It reminds me, of course, of C.S. Lewis's line, Witch in the Wardrobe, where the white witch has turned all of the animals and people of Narnia into statues of stone. And when Aslan comes romping through that courtyard, um, rallying the troops, he begins one by one to breathe upon each of those statues. And what, and what does it say happens? It says they go from stone, black and white deadness, and that color slowly begins to return to their faces, in fact, till they wake up and find themselves truly alive. It's just like watching the first part of Wizard of Oz in black and white, where they get to Oz and there's color everywhere. That's Jesus in the midst of this death and decay. And, and here is what Matthew wants us to note. Jesus' life, and at his headship, at his kingship, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in on a broken world. You see, all of these signs, all of these miracles are, are meant to serve as a reminder 
They're meant to be sort of, sort of a, a down payment, a pointer to the new life that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus is going to reign. You see, Jesus is the great physician. He's the great healer. But most importantly, these things simply establish his authority to rule. Four Oaks, he is the king. He is the sovereign. He is the life giver. He is the Lord who has power over the physical realm, yes. But more importantly, power over the spiritual. He has the authority to both heal and to forgive sins. Now, I mentioned this in one of um, our other messages a few weeks ago when we were looking at some similar situations here. That the real lesson here is not how to have the requisite amount of faith to be healed, right? So we do see in this and other circumstances where Jesus, other stories in Matthew, where Jesus says things like, um, daughter, your, fa your faith has made you well. Uh, your, your faith has healed you. Um, and, and one of the things we said then, and I, and I want to repeat it now, the healing is important, right? It, it, it addresses an immediate need. It communicates divine divinity on the part of Jesus. It, it, it shouts, proclaims this idea that Jesus' reign and rule is coming to the earth. But the reality, right, is that this healing, this physical healing, even in the lives of these people, is only temporary, right? All of them are going to end up getting sick again and dying at some point in their lives. Now, and, and it's okay to pray for healing. It's good to pray for healing and to seek physical healing. But everyone's prayers for physical healing will always go unanswered at least once, right? At death. See, that's important, but the real lesson here is that Jesus is restoring eternal life. This physical healing is just a sign, it's a down payment, it's a pointer to this permanent spiritual and physical healing that we are going to receive one day at the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back to reign forever. Just an application point or two here before we get to our last point. You know, the, 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 I said earlier in this sermon, it's important for us to get in touch with the death and decay in your life. Can I just also say it's just as important and even more important to get in touch and connect to the only life-giving hope we have in this life, and that's Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ that through tears we can rejoice. Through pain we can find comfort in the forgiveness of our sins. Through heartache we have the assurance that this is only temporary that there is, in actuality, an eternal weight of glory which will be ours as God's people one day that will far outweigh anything this life has to offer. So we wait in hope. We grieve in hope. We mourn in hope. We go on mission in hope. And we trust Jesus in hope, which brings us to our last point, and this will be quick. There is a decisive decision that Matthew presses upon us here. I mentioned this at the beginning. What, what's astounding about these three episodes is the diversity of responses that we see to the very same set of events. In other words, 
everybody's watching the same miracles, but everyone is responding so differently. It tells us that the mourners scoff and mock. It tells us that the crowds are amazed, which might sound good, and it could be, but we know crowds are fickle. And as we will see later in Matthew, many will walk away from Christ because they love the miracles, but they didn't want to entrust their life to him. And of course, the Pharisees, the blasted Pharisees for their part, offer their response, verse 34, but the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Their hearts are so hard, they, they, they resort to a, a logical fallacy to justify their position, which is absurd on the surface of things. They say the reason he can cast out demons is because he's a demon himself, because he's Satan himself. That's like saying that the general of an army is killing as many of his own soldiers as possible in the hopes of beating the enemy. That's ridiculous, ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. But what that is a reminder for us, though, for Oaks, is that unbelief is a very powerful thing. It is not a matter of the intellect. A lot of times we have this idea, if we could just get people more information, more knowledge, this would really persuade them. The Pharisees had a front row seat to all of this. It was not a matter of intellect for them or evidence. It was a matter of the heart. If Jesus had called down fire from heaven for them, they would have explained that away too. They simply didn't want to entrust their lives to him and repent. But I think it's the response of the blind men that are representative for us for all of the responses of faith that we see in this text. Look back to chapter 9. They say to him, the blind men, Son of David, have mercy. See, Son of David is a royal address. It is a title. It is an affirmation that they are giving him that we recognize that it is only the son of David, it is only God's chosen Messiah that would have the power to do things such as this. And we are recognizing your lordship and kingship over us, not just to heal us, but to transform our lives as well. They know that no mere man could do this kind of thing. And so Jesus asked them, do you think I can do this? And here is their very simple response. It is the response that Matthew presses towards us. They simply say, yes, Lord. Yes, Kyrios. It's a, it's a divine title. It's a title of authority. It's a title of recognition. And it's a, it's a recognition on their part that Jesus has done this physical healing so that they might see their profound need for the forgiveness of their sins and entrust their life to him. What about you? Where in your life this season are death and decay all around? But where in your life this season do you need the faith that only the Holy Spirit can give to say, yes, Lord, you are the life giver. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You bring liberty. You bring life. And the way that this has happened is that you have laid down your life for us. 
where in your life for you this season does it need to be yes lord well that decision is right in front of us today it's there's no better time than to begin that walk of faith than to simply say yes lord i entrust myself to you i entrust my problems my issues my sin my struggles my conflicts knowing that i pray for resolution today and where you give it i give you glory and grace and knowing that it's a down payment on the eternal healing that i'll have but in the meantime i wait and hope let's pray lord we do say yes to you lord we ask that you would give us eyes of faith a heart of faith and that even amidst the brokenness and disease and decay we see both in this passage and in our world and in our lives that we would see you as the true life giver the one who brings hope the one who brings life the one who forgives sins lord we ask these things in your son's name jesus christ amen